Yeah, Alex. So such such a pleasure to finally get to talk to you. Likewise, yeah. <laughs> feel feel like we already know each other. Yeah. Yeah, I I remember you were backstage, not back. Well, kind of backstage at the show in Helsinki, Stickman show in Helsinki. That's where I first saw you. I think Leo. Yes, uh, that's right. Me. That's yeah. right. I, I was there on tour, and I came with our bass player, who was a Stickman fanatic. So. Really, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. It's um, it's it's amazing to hear that. I I still can't believe that that there are people who actually uh, are fans of what I do, but or yeah. what we do. <laughs> well, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's just, and this, you know the movie Spinal Tap. They talk about a selective audience. You know, <laughs> it's uh, exactly. It's a, it's a selective one, but but very dedicated and. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. this guy flip. He got all excited when he found out we were in the same town. <laughs> I think he was already trying to figure out a way to go, and I told him, "Oh, you know, I think I have a, a way for us to go." Mm-hmm. And uh, this connection that he, you know, he didn't know that I we had. So, uh, hey, so it was a great show. Thank you. Hey, so I'm, uh, uh, I'm not sure if you know that, but a couple of years ago, it was in 2019, there was an event in Holland somewhere, probably in Eindhoven. I can't really remember exactly, but you were there doing a, a clinic in mm-hmm. the afternoon. And, um, and that was kind of like the first time I experienced you as a jazz player, let's say, or people, a person interested in jazz and also in... in uh, in teaching jazz, yeah. and it was um, it was pretty interesting to see you in that in that context. And would you would you consider yourself to be also a? Are you actually interested in teaching? Is that something that comes easy to you? Yeah, it comes very easy, actually. Yeah, I I enjoy it, and uh, I make it a big part of what I do. I do a lot lot of like online posts. Mm-hmm. Where I like mm-hmm. to teach, mm-hmm. um, we're working on a book now that's going to come out through Hal Leonard, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I did a couple videos for True Fire, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I do I usually do a few master classes every year. Great. Um, just did one at Sweetwater, um, along with uh, Stu Ham, the great bass player. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I enjoy the process. Yeah, I really enjoy the uh, education part of it. I, I could be perfectly happy doing that as well. Yeah, you see, I I've found out for myself that it's become part of my my practicing, my personal practicing routine to also pass pass the knowledge on. Let's say that I've acquired over the years, and somehow just giving it away frees up space within myself to. To do something else and to, to go further and and somehow it's sometimes I I'm even say like assigning uh, research to students of mine where I'm not even practicing uh, those things that I came up with myself but I have others do it and it's 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 kind of interesting. Yeah, I think that's the best way to get something down yourself mm-hmm. is to to be to be able to teach it. Because once mm-hmm. you have it on a level where you can teach the thing, whatever it is, then 
yeah, that's proof you you've absorbed it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it help it helps uh, retain the material to be able to pass it on. Mm -hmm. You know, I I listened into the conversation you had with Tim yesterday with Tim Motzer. That was really fun. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you said that your your parents were in academia or are in academia. That's right. Uh -huh. um, what 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 did they do, or what do they do in academia? Yeah, very non-musical fields. So, uh, sociolo sociology. Yeah. Um, you know, sociology as it relates to laws and uh, mm -hmm. um, and psychology. Yeah. Well, interesting. So. They both have PhDs from Yale. My father's highly decorated uh, academic, and, uh -huh. like a, considered like a giant in his field of sociology. Wonderful. That's, and and did um, how would you know? Did that have an influence on you as a human being? I mean, I don't know. No, it must have had. But uh, can you yeah. quantify it somehow? Like being. Uh, like knowing that world of academia as a young person, like I didn't, for for example, I did not. I like my parents are pure working class, and I yeah. had no contact whatsoever. Um, would you say That's that it had any influence on you? Um, I to be honest, I was very confused by it. Mm -hmm. It just seemed very complicated, you know, because I I would meet other kids and they would say, oh, you know, I have a parent who is a teacher mm -hmm. or a doctor, you know, some very simple thing. That, and I just could not understand what they did. Like, what, what is this? What is, what are social sciences? You know, what, what are research studies? What, what are mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. statistics? You know, um, so I, I didn't. I didn't get it for the longest time, and to be honest, the the lifestyle never seemed very interesting to me either. It just seemed to consist of these mm -hmm. sort of faculty events, and um, you know, attending conferences and preparing of uh, you know papers and presentations, writing for. Uh, ac academic journals it just really was not exciting so music when music came along was very exciting and I think I gravitated early on towards rock and roll and especially like wild rock and roll which you, you know so heavy metal you could describe as you know more mm -hmm. you know ex extreme high energy filled music um both in terms of the music and the performance and the whole scene surrounding yeah. it yeah. that <laughs> that just resonated with me i think that that's partly why because i think uh there's something about you know the those who study other people okay. you know that tend to be very unassuming blend in the background you know, whatever that is, whether that's a psychologist or a um, even a photographer to a certain extent, you know, they tend to be, you know, just 
blending in not that noticeable mm-hmm. and I wanted to be noticed <laughs> <laughs> you know and have rock and roll and especially heavy metal you get noticed especially oh. once you're old enough to sort of adopt the look mm-hmm. and you know the, the hair and you know the other things but I think it at the same time as I got older, I think the um, the academic side started coming out, mm-hmm. and I felt when I um, after, you know after, after at a certain point, I guess uh, still in my in my teens, but a little later, usually by your late teens, um, many musicians have sort of decided on a direction. If you're in a rock band, you know that's that's it. Whether you stay with that band or not, you're that type of musician mm-hmm. or you're a jazz musician or whatever. And I, I had this sort of reawakening. Like I suddenly I was much more interested in diff- these other sort of uh, more fine arts types of music mm-hmm. that, you know, were, th- there was more like academia surrounding them, whether it was jazz or classical. Mm-hmm. And just wanting to learn music on a serious level and just, yeah, I kind of felt, it's not like I wanted to get away from the, the music I was doing. I still love that music, but I feel like there, there's more. And I think that mm-hmm. kind of curiosity and that um, knack for observation and just, and, and just learning, that, that hit me later. So I think that you can make a connection there. Yeah, I think you know the once you develop an interest in in the learning experience itself, right? There is no stopping you from actually looking beyond what you already know, and and then like in music, obviously other styles and other approaches, kind of like that's what you kind of like need to, uh, or that that you can utilize. You can utilize those to actually go beyond what you know, and because there's there's also like the connection with like the, as you say, like the look, but I mean, like there's also the, obviously the sound, like bossa nova sounds very different uh, than metal. Right. So, so, yeah, so, very, um, very. so at that point, would you say that you were still kind of like, as you started kind of like getting into other kinds of music, was it still about like getting, getting noticed or were you beyond that at that point? Um, then I, I was pretty much beyond that. Um, by the way, it's it just got very cloudy here. It was very bright, so if, <laughs> if you'd like some more light, I can uh, click yeah, on it. Yeah, turn turn it on. Yeah. Okay. I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. that's better. better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could barely see myself. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think uh, at that point I wanted to be less noticed because <laughs> I think um, yeah, I I had joined the band that would become Testament. It wasn't called Testament at the time uh, at sixteen, mm-hmm. and really very quickly went from local clubs to national clubs. Mm-hmm and international clubs and even occasional 
uh, larger shows. Mm -hmm. I mean, by the time we were touring Europe for the first time, I mean, I think I was 19 years old. And oh. we weren't, the, you know, the festivals were kind of still new, at least for, you know, those, the hard, harder music festivals. There were a few, not nearly as many as now, mm -hmm. but they were occasional ones. And we still weren't on the level to play those, but I remember there was one that uh, Megadeth had dropped off of and couldn't make so they needed a fill-in and we were somebody they reached out to to fill in so we filled in at the show i think it, there were two of them and they were both stadium shows mm -hmm. uh, on this bill with just you know a crazy number of bands like david lee roth with steve i <laughs> mm -hmm. um i think Iron Maiden headlined. Kiss was on it. I mean, it was just a crazy lineup. A lot of European groups as well. Uh, so there were occasional shows like that. And I think um, by the, yeah, so by the time I was getting more into uh, music outside of that and just wanting to be a more diverse musician, um, yeah, it really wasn't much about being noticed. And in fact, I had been to a couple concerts when I was off tour where I was just so knocked out by the music mm -hmm. and there was hardly anybody there. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had this realization that, you know what, I would rather be a musician like this you know, playing for, you know, I don't know, uh, less than, definitely less than 100 people. I think at this show, there were probably, you know, 10 to 30, I, it was, you know, very small place, but um, they were studio musicians mm -hmm. in the San Francisco Bay Area that were mm -hmm. part of this network with um, Nard Michael Walden, who had moved to the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah, well, and he's kind of better known now as a pop producer, you know, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey. But in the 70s, he had replaced Billy Cobham in Mahavishnu Orchestra, mm -hmm. um, played for Jeff Beck Wire. I mean, it's just this history on the you know, seminal fusion record. So he would hire the best musicians for his pop recordings, but a lot of them were, you know, serious improvisers. And they would get together, uh, and I heard about these shows from uh, a recording engineer that we worked with, and he told me about it. And he just said, yeah, these are like some of the best musicians in the Bay Area. So I started going to hear these musicians, and it was just, yeah, it was just a knockout. And it was improvisation, but it was, it was real, um, yeah, it was real jazz rock. I mean, they, they would do some standards, they would mm -hmm. do you know, stuff from like Weather Report and Return to Forever. Uh, but they, they had some originals. Uh, the keyboardist wrote a lot of original tunes. I think he he probably could have been a pretty well-known guy, like a Zawinul or a, a Chick Corea. But he, he was, you know, he had a very good life in, like in the studios. So I, I liked, I was looking to musicians like that. These are 
people in the studios that are just, you know, top level musicians, but it's not about the um, attention. So I, I spoke with uh, Koaru Ustici, who is a guitarist who played with Narada around that time. So What's maybe he was, uh, Corrado is an Italian, Corrado Rustici. Okay. And he, he was the co-producer on the Whitney Houston stuff. And, and he was oh, the guitarist. Oh, okay. He so, probably played around that time. Yeah. I don't think I saw him at those shows. Mm -hmm. And I think not all of the musicians were in the, the Bay. I think, I think he had the Bay Area musicians, but I think he would also, they would do some of the recordings in LA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I think I know some of the musicians who probably worked with him. But yes, yes. So um, this is this is interesting. So it seems to me like you. Uh, well, I mean, I I know that, I, but I was going to say it anyway. So you are in it for the love of music, and and but the way that it went for you career-wise, you kind of like had success with your first band, right? And then on top of that, like you learned what you were really into, like where you were saying, okay, it's not about like for me being successful or anything or like seen by a lot of people, but you wanted to hone your craft and you were blown away by those jazz rock people, let's say, who inspired you. And, and you're, you're just like, I think you were born in 68. Is that true? Yeah. So you're just, just four years older than I am. So I, I have sort of an idea which climate like you uh, grew up in. Um, obviously like the States very different from Europe, but um so when you said like you were 19 when you had your first like international tours, uh, yeah, that's that's, nice. that, that's kind of insane. I mean, like, can you um, do you under well probably you can explain why do you think Testament? Um, it was called Testament then, right? When you were touring, by the time we were touring, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So so Testament was why were you guys so successful? I mean, did you guys really was it just luck or um did you guys play a lot practice a lot did you guys have a vision was there like one person in the band that had a vision or how did it come together well i think part of it was was luck um mm -hmm. but we we were just part of this whole scene of heavy bands in the bay mm -hmm. area mm -hmm. and uh by the time i joined the band i I was looking for a, a band. I just realized, um, like, band leadership is not my skill. <laughs> like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe I'll develop that one day, but I, you know, I just don't have that, especially at that time, I did not have that personality. I was super quiet. Mm -hmm. And I was just unsure, unsure about the process. Mm -hmm. Like, how does that work, you know? So I... I had already like thought in my head I, I should join an existing band and I was just kind of keeping an eye out for bands and then sure enough uh, almost like clockwork like it was meant to happen somebody told me that this band needs a guitar player and I was aware of the band because they were um, they were they were pretty new bands still but they were getting shows Mm -hmm. for new bands at the time like Slayer was actually a new band at this point mm -hmm. yeah mid 80s mm -hmm. they, they came to the San Francisco Bay Area up from Southern California and I think their 
second or third show, you know, the, the band opened up and friends would tell me about them. I didn't, I, I didn't catch that show. I had seen the very first Slayer show mm-hmm. in the Bay Area, so that was, which was pretty cool. Um, but I, I think a big part of it was you had one band that was just off to the races already. So and that band is Metallica. And they weren't like the level they are now. I mean, now they're mentioned alongside Bruce Springsteen and mm-hmm. yeah. you too. That nobody ever would have imagined that, but still, they were like really quickly things happened for them. So I think by the time I joined my band, they already had um, "Ride the Lightning" was already out, and they were on a major label, Electra. They were doing a lot of these these festivals in Europe. And I guess because they had such a, an identity with, they, they had relocated to the Bay Area for um, Cliff Burton, the mm-hmm. original bassist. Um, and they'd already built up their following. So anyway, by this, by this point, Metallica's like clearly rising quickly and they're looking, you know, there, there is interest. It's such a new thing. I think there was industry interest in um, other heavy bands, mm-hmm. and especially from the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And a lot of groups signed uh, record deals at that time. Um, some of them were with, there were a lot of very small independent labels, and especially in Europe. There were these European labels, like I remember Music for Nations, was one and um yeah it was like really quick we were like getting offers and we were all excited but then we mm-hmm. we would meet with uh, an entertainment attorney who that was one great thing about you know my my father being this law professor <laughs> he had these connections to mm-hmm. good attorneys and you know the attorney was very very disappointed he disappointed us and said i'm sorry guys these record deals are terrible like you're just better off not signing any of these record mm-hmm. deals mm-hmm. but by the way he said and he's negotiating another deal for this label megaforce records and he said um listen i let the head of megaforce records hear the the your demo tape just to, uh, just out i just wanted his opinion what does he think of it and uh he actually really, really likes it mm-hmm. and wants to talk about possibly recording you guys for Megaforce Records. So, so Megaforce had been Metallica's first um, oh, record label. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, they actually managed Anthrax, who was already on their way at that point. They had a couple albums. And they were in the process of getting a distribution deal with a major label. So I think we were helped by the fact that we signed with this label, this indie label that was so associated with Metallica. And we turned it, we didn't sign the first contract we got, which we wanted to. I think, and I think a lot of bands did. I think that actually hurt some, some of the other bands. And they t- turned out to have this distribution deal with Atlantic Records. 
So mid and a, a few albums in, the distribution deal expired, and they had a bit of a, a falling out between uh, Megaforce and Atlantic Records. And by that time, we were doing well enough so that you know, Atlantic Records actually had the option to choose some bands to go directly on Atlantic Records. Mm-hmm. And Testament was one of the bands. So it was kind of this, you know, <laughs> series of unplanned events that wouldn't happen again if you tried to do it, uh, you know, if you tried to redo it. And I think that's often how it is. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard so many industry stories. Like, yeah, for sure. I wasn't, I wasn't, well, I was aware. Um, of metal at that time and I had like also this sense like as a as a 12 year old right that there was a movement right that's mm-hmm. kind of like what it felt like um, but now you've kind of explained to me how that actually worked on the level of the bands and it makes total sense that uh, being in the right place at the right right time knowing the right people you kind of like get you know um, drawn into that into that world and so the, the other guys in the band were older than you back then yes yeah they were all uh like early 20s okay okay so they had you know finished school had jobs you know it was different places in life but luckily you know they liked my playing and you know as long as i could do a rehearsal or two a week and uh you know an occasional gig that was that was fine i'm i'm curious so um when you first joined that band, and you had the you were the guitarist, or were there were there two guitarists in the band? It's two guitarists, yeah. Two, it was two guitarists. Founded by the other guitarist. There. Okay, okay. So what was what was your role initially as second guitarist or first guitarist? Was there was there any talk about that? I mean, did you did you were you involved in any writing from the very beginning, or um, did you have to learn? Songs yeah. first at that. Well, they had about a half a dozen songs, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. It'd be, and pretty much almost all of them ended up on the first album too. Yeah, and you can really hear a difference too, because the influence of those songs is it's very clear. It's Motorhead. Okay. <laughs> it's um, Slayer because Slayer was already. Mm-hmm. doing albums at that point mm-hmm. um we you know there was a little bit of, of other stuff but i would say it it kind of ha- yeah had a really fast almost like garage band you know <laughs> feel to it that's where mm-hmm. the, the motorhead thing comes mm-hmm. in just driving mostly one key mm-hmm. and the first song i brought in was like you know these iron maiden style harm twin harmonies uh-huh. with uh you know different modes that they'd never used before mm-hmm. and it was it was a big change um mm-hmm. so you can tell about you know just under half of the, the songs on the first record that you know there's a lot of harmony a lot of single note parts which mm-hmm. weren't there before uh some key changes so I, I really tried to make it uh, musical. Some of the ideas I brought in were more in the style of 
like Ozzy Osbourne and mm-hmm. Iron Maiden. Uh, but they, you know, the tempo would just have to speed up. It was just <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of those ideas. Yeah, they were they were changed once I brought once we started working together on them. So um, before joining that band that became Testament, uh, were you uh, uh, had you written any songs before that or riffs or was were you like like when did you start being a composer? Yeah, because I I had tried I I had tried to put together a few different bands and it just mm-hmm. never worked. Uh, there weren't as many musicians at my school. Uh, mm-hmm. Some were starting, but most hadn't played very long. It's very different from today, because now we have this culture of, you know, people, kids playing in instruments, joining bands where others are little kids, and you, mm-hmm. you see them on YouTube and everything, and, it, mm-hmm. and it's great. But it, mm-hmm. it wasn't like that. I mean, it was actually pretty rare that I had started guitar at 10, and, you know, it was... I still had, you know, had a long way way to go, but I was pretty good for my age, and it was definitely good enough to be playing in one of these local bands. So, yeah. I yeah, I had tried with a couple other kids at school, and I just felt like you know it was just a mismatch. They they, they needed a few more years on their instruments. Um, I did try with some older players. And it was okay. It was, but it it was just. I think, yeah. One of them had was already, you know, starting another career, and you know, wasn't going to be doing music full time, and whatever happened. But um, for a couple of these projects, you know, I just had little parts laying around. They weren't even. They weren't complete songs, mm-hmm. but they were parts. And a bunch of these parts ended up on the first Testament album. Including that one with the the harmonies. It's a song called "Burnt Offerings," mm-hmm. and um, yeah, a couple of the main parts in that song. I just I had them. I wasn't sure what to do with them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I wasn't thinking of vocal line at that point. I did not even know how to visualize vocal lines, and wasn't focused on the other instruments. Yeah, I'm I'm amazed by um, musicians who are like multi instrumentalists, and mm-hmm. yeah, like Eddie Van Halen could just mm-hmm. put together a whole song, all, all the parts, play the drum parts, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Prince, you know, it's probably the best example. Like, yeah. like not an instrument he couldn't play. I, yeah, I I couldn't have imagined that. So I I was just really guitar focused. Later on, of course, I. I realized, okay, I need to have a bass. <laughs> mm-hmm. I need to play a little bass sometimes. I need to play, you know, at least have a rudimentary knowledge of a keyboard. Yeah. And I'm okay now. I'm not performance level, but I, you know, I have moments where you, you might hear me and think I'm a piano player. You know, one, one aspect about this uh, initial drive to get to know and get to love music uh, and becoming a composer for me, that was around the age of started at around ten, but it really started to take uh, like full force between twelve and fourteen or something. And now I sometimes I still find myself like just even recently, just three years ago with Stickman, 
bringing in a piece into the band that I had the idea for when I was 13 or something, which is oh, so wow. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah it's, incre it's incredible that like sometimes these ideas, they, they sort of like simmer, right? right. And, and they are waiting for the right time to, to come alive. And like I was, I was kind of like shocked. I'd never, I'd never um, imagined that this, you know, would ever find a form, and especially with 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 Stickman. Like, but anyway. <laughs> so that's why that's why I'm asking. You know, that's why I'm interested in how these things uh, go for other people, other musicians yeah. who, you know, have dedicated their life to music. Well, at thirteen, what was the instrument you composed? Um, it was even before I, before I played guitar. You know, like I, I started like at six with like playing recorder and uh, stuff, uh -huh. stuff like that. And I played mandolin um, oh, between cool. between eight or nine years old and 15. Uh -huh. And uh, and so, but it was actually a keyboard. Yeah, like my, my parents bought me like a small Yamaha with like small keys yeah, when I was yeah. when I was 10. Uh -huh. And those are great. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that's that's when I started kind of exploring harmony and stuff, you know, and yeah. and that's where the first first I, musical and harmonic ideas kind of appeared. You know? yeah, yeah. And for me it was, um, uh, and I then fell in love with uh, a friend's uh, acoustic guitar, which was a mm -hmm. nylon string. And I had my first classical guitar lesson when I was 15. So um, did, you, did you play um, a classical guitar at all? No, I never did. And that's one thing I would, if I could do it over, I would probably study classical guitar, at least on some level. Mm -hmm. I just didn't, it's, it seemed so, um, I, I mean, I definitely had an appreciation for it. It just seemed so different. Mm -hmm. You know, the, just the instrument, the size of the, the spacing of the strings, the technique. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it is, it is great. And I, in recent years, I've been doing more parts where I need fingers or at least like fingers and hybrid, where I'm, I'm choosing different notes. And I guess my, my harmonic knowledge is much higher now. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I can definitely use more of that, you know, the, the playing of intervals and, you know, things that classical technique could be a help with. And I'll work on little parts here and there, but it's, I definitely appreciate it now today than I did when, when I was young. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I agree it's a completely different instrument in a way. It's just the, the, the fact that you have access to all six strings at the same time yeah. with, your, with your right hand uh, makes all the difference, like, mm -hmm. you know. And, That's uh, amazing. So, so were you, were you, uh, when you, when you started at 10 years old, uh, did you have a teacher or did you just grab a guitar? Um, have you, you know, do you remember did you use a pick from the very beginning, or how did that go? Yeah, I used a pick from the beginning. So I was lucky to have a, a really good teacher who was good with kids. Mm -hmm. And he was a folk musician. Oh, and mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the first things I learned was you know, how to hold a pick. Um, the you know the music I liked, uh, and I was I was talking about this um, with Tim, mm -hmm. was the um, songs that were simple for a child to understand. Right, like, mm -hmm. one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. 
right? Yeah. Um, you know, we all live in a yellow submarine. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here comes the sun. It's like um, all great songs. Yes. So when I learned guitar, that these types of songs were really what I learned. And mm -hmm. uh, my teacher, he was very good at con making connections with these songs, you know. Because mm -hmm. really, like Rock Around the Clock is a blues, mm -hmm. you know. A lot of um, Elvis tunes are blues. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, blues form, if not yes. blues, the blues genre. Mm -hmm. And um, I, at that point, I, my, you know, my uh, gateway to heavy rock and roll was Kiss. You know, they mm -hmm. were like superheroes. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, this guy was great. My teacher, uh, he really even found like some of that blues connection in, in Kiss, certain mm -hmm. Kiss songs. Uh, There's a song called Let Me Go Rock and Roll. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably inspired by Led Zeppelin rock and roll. Mm -hmm. It's the same type of thing, like an up-tempo kind of tune, follows the blues, but it has, you know, a riff based on, like, a classic early rock and roll riff. Mm -hmm. And my teacher, his name is Gary LePoe, he would make that connection, and he would say, you know, this is very close to, you know, Chuck Berry. Mm -hmm. And I was a huge fan of Chuck Berry because I, I saw him in a movie. And I just was knocked out, mm -hmm. and it turned, you know, it turned out that he had influenced everybody. Once I started reading about the Stones and the Beatles and you know Led Zeppelin, everybody was influenced by Chuck Berry, and I, I had no idea. I had just seen him in this film and just been gotten excited. But uh, yeah, there are so many connections. So my yeah my first teacher gary he would make that connection between chuck berry and kiss and the beatles and even other songs that i wasn't even aware of like you know he would point out that the beach boys song uh, surfing usa is basically the same song as chuck berry's sweet little 16 mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah started making connections in that in that sense as well that's that's pretty amazing i think yeah. that the best teachers they they uh let you experiences experience these connections or like the historical uh associations of like yeah you have a chord sequence here that's very much like the blues form and but then there is like a little riff that like the led zeppelin thing that is a little like a folk song from ireland or mm -hmm. uh, and like all of these yeah and it's it's certainly a very good way um you know as a teacher to spark a creativity in children if they sort of like start thinking that way and understanding where the modules they work with, you know, like come from. Yeah, yeah and it certainly influenced how I would teach later on in life, too. Mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's all, all about connections. And I, I might make a connection that you could take a song like um, Ozzy Osbourne, Goodbye to Romance, Especially because I've I've taught a lot of um, guitarists over the years that you know they're more familiar with hard rock and heavy metal. So mm -hmm. Ozzy Osbourne, Goodbye to Romance, everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. Well, would you ever make the connection between Billy Joel and the mm -hmm. Billy Joel song Piano Man? It's actually the same progression. Mm 
mm-hmm. which is the same progression as um, all the young dudes by mm-hmm. David Bowie, you know, most mm-hmm. famous version by Monte Hoople, mm-hmm. and numerous other songs. Uh, there's like an Elton John song that does the same thing, and it's really just going down the uh, major scale system. Yes, it's just it's just a descending scale in each chord of the scale and then resolving and then a melody written on top of that mm-hmm. and that that's that's really how i started to understand music theory and pe- students have seemed to really uh, appreciate that because everybody's got that sound in their head that you you know whether you know those songs or not you know some song that that does that mm-hmm. and the and it just it outlines the whole system and then mm-hmm. from there you can start to pick uh chord, chord other chords to start on and find other songs that's okay this is just like this song and this is this one's just like this song and then it starts to make sense but i think for me um it really helped just hearing learning to hear all that um I learned, I, I learned, I figured out that I, I learned better that way. And I, and I had these books, I had these transcription books and I would just get tired reading them. I would, I, I wasn't, I was like, what is like, this is just not making me want to play. Mm-hmm. Um, music itself makes me want to play. So mm-hmm. I kind of, but I, I also realized I need to be able to understand this at a basic level, the written music. I don't need to be able to sight read at Carnegie Hall. You know, I don't need to be like, like that level of under, but I also, but I, I do need to be able to write a chart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, and this is of course, after I was getting into more serious music and realized, okay, if I'm, I wanna work with the musicians that are more trained in either jazz or classical or some kind of, you know, kind of written that that's how you communicate with the chart. Mm -hmm. So in, in Testament, did you guys write down anything? Nothing. Nothing. I made, I've (laughs) I've made a lot of jokes about that, you know, just that was partly what inspired me to really get it together as far as like being able to write a chart because the process, I just think it's so slowed down by trying to describe what you're trying to accomplish. Right. Yeah. 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 So I mean, like, especially if you, and, and uh, I know that you uh, were not in the band for many years, right? Yeah, and then you came back to it, and uh, and sometimes I know it can be a real pain in the neck uh, trying to remember what what one played, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and I and by that point, I mean I've learned I've learned to just accept whatever situation I'm in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know it's. It can be really funny, you know, because I, I can find myself in, in a room with you know, musicians like uh, you know, Adam Holtman from mm-hmm. Steve yeah. Wilson and Miles Davis and Mark Egan from Pat Metheny. You know, we mm-hmm. all played on uh, this 
with uh, uh, Jane Gather, who's a great musician, and it's like there's charts, mm -hmm. and we're going to take it from measure 54, and then um, we're going to take a coda at C, or whatever, you know, <laughs> and they, and, you know, these are players, they mostly do that. So when I go to those rehearsals, yeah, I drink a cup of coffee, I'm on my toes, I pay close attention, I don't, um, yeah, I studied the chart a little before, yeah, just to be, you have to be on it, you know, and mm -hmm. it, it, it just moves so fast, it's just a matter of keeping up, whereas, yeah, I go back to, to my old band, and the rehearsals, it's like, you know, we're going to take it from this part, du, 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 you know, <laughs> like verbalizing it. Yeah, yeah. Where he goes, du, 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 du. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's just, it's just a different kind of language, you know, in, in yes. a way. And it's, I, I just think that in the, in the process of creating music, uh, it can be, that's when it really shows that if you don't have the musical language, let's say, then things can take a long time to get sorted yeah. out because, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I've heard whole conversations, you know, play this. No. That's not what you did. No, I did. It's wonderful. Sorry. Yeah, so I get And so when that ends, I yeah I just have have to get get used to that and uh, mm -hmm. but also I I try to help those situations too I just mm -hmm. like okay this is how we, how it is mm -hmm. um, you know I I try to help by like recording like okay I think he means this part right here okay but it's a it's a very different um, process yeah let me That's, tell you let me tell you a little story out of my from my life like uh, you know the. <laughs> Being in a band where then suddenly people say, oh, this sounds so wrong or something is like, I don't know what's, it doesn't sound good, it doesn't sound good. And it was actually the bass player was a half step off of oh the root note. And that's all it was like, Ooh. but nobody, nobody <laughs> figured it out. Well, for wow. me, it was absolutely obvious, right? But, <laughs> wow. but it's, just, it's just funny, like, like then, yeah. then like this whole process starts like, oh, something doesn't sound good. Right, like yeah. What could it be? It, I just found that very funny. Yeah, and I still find it funny. <laughs> well, that's that can be deceptive too, because the bass—it's such a low frequency. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it sounds fine with the notes he's the patterns he's playing. Yes, <laughs> but but somehow, yeah, something about the whole thing is just like clashing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, that's that's really funny. Yeah. Um, I I and I think another thing it's caused me to get better at bringing in my own ideas and demoing, which is much more possible today mm -hmm. than it was when I when I started. Like when I started, the like the best um, home recording situation. If you weren't a successful professional musician like Eddie Van Halen with his 5150. You know, that's not most people. Yeah. Um, the best thing was, you know, they, they had these little um, multi-track recorders that, mm -hmm. on cassettes. Mm -hmm. 
and I had one of those. It was called the uh, Porta One, and um, yeah, I did. A, I did a bunch of. I would do. I would demo as best I could, but even then, it was very limited. You know, it's a cassette. It's only four tracks. It's uh, you can sort of capture the raw idea, but you have to explain. Oh, okay, no, it's going to sound good. Actually. And now we have laptops with the same software that's used in studios. Mm -hmm. And we can record with the same gear that we use live. I mean, it doesn't, if it's a digital amp, it's not, you know, I don't need a, um, a wall of stacked Marshall amplifiers anymore to get that sound i can just take a digital amp like the kemper which is the one i use mm -hmm. and just run that through mm -hmm. pro tools or logic i have logic and uh, mm -hmm. drum programming and uh play you know play the bass i'm able to come up with parts that some i've i've played some of my demos for people and i'm asked you know who's who's who did you get to play drums <laughs> that, that's that's all done at home yeah so it's just a much better way to you know to present an idea like, mm -hmm. here's the riff it sounds pretty maybe it doesn't sound like the album but it sounds you know it sounds pretty good for a demo mm -hmm. and it's a good um good blueprint for what it is yeah, in, for sure. in the past, somebody might not like a potentially very good idea just because it sounds terrible because it's on a cassette. And luckily, we don't have that problem anymore. Yeah, that's that's what I found um, difficult in the analog days, right? Uh -huh. Writing writing with a band where, like, if it was sort of like a democratic process mm -hmm. where not, not everybody was equal, right? Like... Like maybe somebody was able to present something in sure. a more convincing way, <laughs> right? And mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't really about the musical idea; it was more about how to, you know, get it across. And and yeah, that that has changed, you know. But at the same time, like you know, we can also think like maybe, you know, back then you had to have more imagination, like just yeah. to kind of like, you know, and yeah. So so for me, interestingly enough, I I. I don't think I've ever made a demo of a song or a piece in my life because like once I start working, it becomes the real thing mm. somehow. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like even if, even if uh, things get replaced later, but you know, like I've never demoed anything. Um, yeah. I think it's, it depends on the project and it sure. depends yeah. on yeah, what, what it's for. But yeah. Yeah. If it's for if I'm writing something to present to Testament, mm -hmm. well, of course, the, of course, the drums are going to be replaced. I'm using the software, yeah, uh, you know, by Tune Track, yeah. and it's it sounds pretty good. And there are yeah. there yeah. are albums out where people are using that, yeah. But yeah, there's just nothing like a real drummer, yeah, and. Um, and it's going to go through changes too, by the you know with the, the band. It's going to mm -hmm. it's going to sound different. Um, 
you know, so even though I've been in, I've been with the band, I was with the band early on, I'm very identified with that. I still didn't start the band, so I still don't have final say on a lot of stuff. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. my ideas, they, they have to be approved by uh, Eric, who founded the band. And mm -hmm. He may change the tempo, he, you know, uh, depending on how attached I am to the idea. I may, uh, you know, I may resist or <laughs> more often than not, I'll go along with it. There was one song on the most recent album, though. I was steadfast, I was, you know, resistant. I just said, that's, that's all I care about. I want this tempo. I don't want to mess with it. And everybody agrees now it was the right decision. But they, mm -hmm. the instinct there is to just speed everything up and, yeah, I don't think that's always the good thing to do. So, uh, when did you leave the band? In the nineties? Uh, early nineties, yeah. Yeah, like ninety-three, I believe. Mm hmm And that was that was the. I mean, what what kind of phase of your life started then? Once you've left the band, once you had had left the band. Um, it was very. Um, it's kind of like, not that I would call it like a, like a lost period, but it was a very, like a period of searching. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like sort of like a reawakening in a way. Because mm -hmm. there's this idea that, okay, you're going to leave the band, everything's going to fall into place somehow. And things did not fall into place. Like, mm -hmm. Um, suddenly, you know, quite, uh, you know, the value of being somebody from a band of this genre, you know, was just very limiting, even mm -hmm. in the rock world, because at that point, um, you know, the tastes were changing yeah. and even, you know, groups from Seattle, and that whole movement were sort of seen as you know, the new heavy rock music, but it also had this appeal way beyond heavy rockers. It was like it was actually reaching uh, mainstream audiences. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the heavier bands were really just being cast aside. Uh, guitar solos were going out of favor. Mm -hmm. You know, it was. Uh, said to be, you know, the end, shred is dead, was the, the expression. It was so silly. I mean, it's just completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But it's like, okay, what do I do? I am the ex-member of this band. And, I, okay, I could either do more music like that, try to put a band together like that. But I, did, I didn't want to do that. I knew I wanted to expand and do other stuff. I was also afraid of sort of losing the visibility that I built up. So I think I, I tried frantically to put bands together. I must have put like a half a dozen <laughs> different bands together. And they just, you know, it, and the, the experience was good. I, I suppose I needed that experience and sort of learned how to, I, I guess I, I learned what, what I was looking for. I didn't know what I was looking for, but I knew what I wasn't looking for. 
Mm-hmm. And I also came to the realization that I need to just take time away. So it it took a few years before I realized that. But I just realized, okay, I need to like change my location. You know, because mm-hmm. I've been in the San Francisco Bay Area, surrounded by people I'd known my whole life. Um, and in music, I was just around the same people all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Going visiting New York uh, at this point, my my parents had temporarily relocated to uh, my father taken a position in, in New York, and mm-hmm. so I would come out to visit and I would meet up with musicians in New York, and I just uh, I got excited and I was mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. to small uh, jazz guitar shows and just meeting all these jazz guitarists and they were not being who weren't judgmental of the fact that it come from heavy metal mm-hmm. um it was just very accepting and i was just you know learn, and i it all led to me relocating taking a few years off and not knowing what was going to happen i just said you know the worst thing that could happen is i, I will get better mm-hmm. i will be a better player i will be a better composer and i don't care I was I was just so done with um, the music industry, mm-hmm. not because I had this traumatic experience. You know, I wasn't one of these people. I never had to file for bankruptcy or anything. I, I know plenty of musicians who have, mm-hmm. um, but you know, just seeing seeing that it's like okay, thrash metal is not popular anymore. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm. Grunge is, you know, join a grunge band, you know. And I saw all these musicians like chasing that, you know, they'd been playing heavy metal before. Now they were getting the proper haircuts and trying, <laughs> trying to look like they could fit in a Nirvana video. And I just, this is so ridiculous. Like, this is not what music's about. Yeah, sorry for laughing about this. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 hilarious. It's, and I, I did fo- I focused on the show the types of shows like I was talking about with very few people but mm-hmm. great players mm-hmm. and I just thought it, this I could really be happy like playing for har- hardly anybody but really um, creating something creating music that feels worthwhile and mm-hmm. I don't care who else thinks it's worthwhile <laughs> like, <laughs> as long as I think it's worth and anybody else yeah. who agrees with me is going to be worth, you know, playing for. Mm-hmm. So I really, um, yeah, I just decided to throw out all commercial considerations all along. T- I thought maybe I'll just, you know, take, be an educator. I'll be like a music educator. I had this experience with this band. And, mm-hmm. you know, I could talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, be a, I'll be a writer, write about that experience, right? Writer, music educator. Um, you know, play small venues, and <laughs> it was fine. I was happy. <laughs> mm-hmm. But well, you know what? I think also what happens when you get to that place, where, you know, you just have no, you know, no more dams left to give. You know, <laughs> to put it <laughs> nicely. Um, so it was was yeah. a pretty pretty long process of uh, say some sort of inner revolution that you went through then in the 90s. Yes, the 90s were a strange time. So, uh, And um, just, just 
because I always want to come back to actually the your relationship with the instrument, right, with the guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, so was was the guitar always your friend? Let's say, like, or was there a time when when you kind of like lost contact even with the guitar, or were you used? Let's say, like some people would say they used that time, you know, where they were confused. Let's say to yeah. practice, and they would practice all day and stuff like that. I mean, how was that for you? When did you woodshed? Well, I I did, but it changed. It mm-hmm. changed. I mm-hmm. I started to feel really limited. It had more to do with the type of guitar than the uh. guitar itself. Mm-hmm. So, I had been with the company Ibanez Guitars, mm-hmm. and was kind of you know known for this. I I, I liked the the guitars, but you know they were these sort of thin modern guitars yeah. they were you know they were very different from say you know a les paul or a hollow body and it just yeah i really i started realizing that okay i'm just so limited by just playing these thin guitars so i, mm-hmm. I started playing more acoustic mm-hmm. um i got some steel strings I got I got this Guild steel string that I I still have. It's not really my main guitar anymore. But mm-hmm. um, I think yeah, you know, big turning point was um, playing the decision to to start playing a hollow body guitar much of the time, mm-hmm. which just has a more natural dynamic, which mm-hmm. is a big challenge. Yeah, you know, when you're used yeah. to distortion and effects. Yeah. You know, to be able to play a clean um, and warm, you know, chord melodies and just to, to play something interesting uh, unaccompanied. Yeah. That was a major challenge. It's just not something that comes up when, when you're, you're in a band, when you're spending years in a heavy rock band. You know, mm-hmm. you always have the band to, you know, the background of the band. So, um Yeah, I made I made a deal with myself. I bought a Gibson L5 from the 70s. It was like the, at the time it was the most expensive guitar I, I bought. Mm-hmm. Um, not you know, not exorbitantly expensive today, but they're I mean it's a beautiful guitar and it's, mm-hmm. I still have it. But you know I decided that guitar is going to go back. It's going to go back to the store. I'm going to get rid of it if I don't. Pull it together as far as you know playing jazz guitar on a professional level. Mm-hmm. So, so I definitely had the relationship with the guitar, but the, like the types of guitar changed. Um, I remember a friend of mine actually reminded me of this. I'd completely forgotten, but one of the reasons I stopped playing Ibanez guitars was uh, I think they were so focused on me as the the thrash guy. They basically said, you know, so you're the thrash metal musician these are the guitars mm-hmm. you're gonna play and i had i had wanted one of their hollow body guitars they make these nice george benson guitars mm-hmm. and they wouldn't even let me have one <laughs> wow yeah and i was just like you know thinking okay this one guitar that i played i i know they sold some guitars because of it because people to this day tell me oh they bought this type of red Ibanez because I had one mm-hmm. and they wouldn't, you know, yeah, they, they wouldn't even let me 
play one of these George Benson. So I was just okay. They're not. This is not a situation that is supportive of my growth. Mm -hmm. So I started buying my own guitars, and that so was was that still in the Bay Area when you bought the L five? At this time, yeah, this was in the Bay Area. This was probably mm -hmm. a couple years before I moved. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, eventually I. I got uh, connected with Heritage Guitars. Uh, I had actually, it's so funny because I bought a Heritage guitar as a backup. Once I realized I was moving to New York, which is a very short time after I'd gotten this L5, I realized, all right, <laughs> I don't want to be going all over the streets of New York in a gig bag with this valuable guitar. So mm -hmm. I need another guitar. <laughs> and the guy at the shop was just a huge believer in this company, Heritage, that had been started by, and he was like almost like overly aggressive about it, but <laughs> they were they were great guitars. And he would just say, I'll put these against any guitars, you know, they're mm -hmm. better than Gibson. And I asked him, what, what if I want to return it? And he said, looked at me, looked at me, there was this silence. No one ever returned to Heritage. <laughs> anyway so fast forward i made this change i changed locations um i stopped caring about commercial considerations and during that time i just i learned um the project that would become my trio my main instrumental project formed mm -hmm. and just led to my first recording under my own name and it, it got I was getting contacted by jazz radio stations and got mentioned. Billboard did a piece on it. Um, mm -hmm. Downbeat, like it was, it was crazy. So it was mm -hmm. like I needed to come to this. I needed to shed my old uh, life in a way, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just yeah, yeah, just change some belief belief systems and just just focus on the art, which was really. All that it's pretty it's pretty simple when you think about it and then all these um very prophetic things happening so the company heritage guitars finds out i'm playing a heritage and they reached out and they want to build me a signature guitar <laughs> you know the same company this guy would like wouldn't shut up about now they're tracking me down and they made my my first signature guitar um Heritage model. I eventually had to leave Heritage Guitars, which I felt bad about because I still mm -hmm. love the guitars, but they're just too small. Mm -hmm. And then I end up rejoining Testament, and then I need more guitars, and they they can't make them. Enough. They can make like one guitar for me a year, mm -hmm. and then I link up with ESP. But I was very firm. I'm like, I, I just don't want to repeat that Ibanez experience. It's like, mm -hmm. I play lots of different guitars. And they, they were great. They said, we will design the guitar with you. Mm -hmm. You can play any guitar you want. Mm -hmm. We see you as this all-around player. We don't just see you as the guy from... And it was great. So mm -hmm. it was interesting. So I came, kind of came full circle. I, was, came, I did come back. The testament, but the band had evolved a lot at that point. There was, yeah, I think they'd learned. They they 
been through a lot of stuff while I was away too. You know, a lot of normal band drama, members leaving, coming and going. And also by the time I came back, I was able to, I was established enough to, you know, not just be locked into that. So it, it's been fun. I mean, I've been back like Alex, twice as long as from uh, when, the first time around. <laughs> yeah, Alex, it's, it's, I, I have to say it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing story because, and, and yeah, you're probably aware of it, but you know, not many people manage to, um, you know, as you say, shed that old life and yeah. start over with like, like embracing the totality of who you are, right? And mm -hmm. and then reconnect with the old life and turn yeah. that into something positive, right? That's that's really quite something. And so so. Just, just the you know, and when you said that Heritage Guitars contacted you, <laughs> you know that that's really that's where I was thinking. Oh, in a way, you've come full circle there, and like you have sort of you've you've stood for what you wanted to do, and then you got recognition for that. Even as you said, with your first first album under under your own name, which is it's great. Which year was that? Was that that was still in the nineties, right? Your first? No, I didn't record an album of my own all through the night. I think it, it really, okay. it's interesting. It really took about 10 years to get to the point where okay. I, I felt ready to do an album. It was uh, 2003, the first, okay. Okay. Maybe, maybe late 2002, the first um, okay. trio album came out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've done several since and um, yeah, and I've I've just I've learned a lot since then. But yeah. um that was yeah, that was um you know, an extraordinary thing. Just realize, okay, I can do this. I can envision a project. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it sounds it seems so simple, right? It's it's an album. It's a CD or and you get it. It's this finished package. But not everybody appreciates how much work goes into those things, right? Like yes. Every mm -hmm. song is a lot of work. So it's this mm -hmm. group of songs, and then they have to all fit together, and mm -hmm. the, you know, the planning, the work, and just yeah, learning how to how to do that. Because when I was with with Testament, we just it everything was happening so fast. Uh, it was the time period where you needed an album out pretty much every year mm -hmm. which is just crazy right there were like these kind of year-long album cycles and you needed the next album to survive in the music industry for your record label to give you tour support so you could mm -hmm. support you know your yourself and hopefully put some away to kind of survive when you're off tour mm -hmm. um it and it it was rough. I mean, it was really you know intense. So, just learning how to create a, an album by myself. Um, I mean, not with other people, but you know, um, overseeing it and mm -hmm. making the decisions and you know learning like who how to ask for. Whose advice to listen to? Whose advice not to listen to? Uh, that it took a long time. 
but I and at one time it was it was unimaginable, and it was pretty rare for you you know if somebody is from a band like Testament for them to do anything outside of the band, especially outside of the genre. And those who did their own music, usually it was like the same type of music, but maybe just with other people. Yeah. Um, and I got asked a lot, like, why don't you do like a heavy album that Testament fans would like, but it's instrumental. It'll mm -hmm. be like, like, a, like a Joe Satriani type thing, except metal. Yeah. And I just thought about it. I, and I got it. I got an offer to do. I've got actually had a couple offers to do these from record labels. I just thought, that is not, <laughs> it just doesn't feel right. It's not how mm -hmm. I want to present myself. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, like uh, Leonardo uh, Pavkovich, he actually made me record an album that features me as a lead player. Uh -huh. which I never wanted to do. And he kind of like made me do that and actually turned out to be a great album. So oh, I'm, happy great. I, I'm happy I did it. But Yeah, sometimes well, you need I, those voices. Yeah. Yes. And somebody yes. like Leo, who's just so connected to music and just such a big appreciator yeah. of the music. Yeah, he'll be able to have these ideas in ways that we won't have. You know, sometimes yeah. it has, has to come from you know, a listener. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what I find fascinating also about your career here and your, your life is that musically you, you, you seem to be getting freer and freer, right, with what you're doing. Yeah. And, and uh, like, you know, like I, I did work on the album that you recorded with Percy and Kenny and Tim. You know, but uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's great. and it's pretty pretty uh, awesome playing, right? Like like from everybody, but I mean especially from you also because like it's it's interesting. Like uh, your voice there is so um, I would I really mean I really mean it. It's kind of like unique, and you don't hear any influences in it and i mean that in the best way possible no thank you like you know it doesn't doesn't sound like somebody trying to play like somebody else or somebody um coming from metal or whatever like it's it doesn't sound like that at all it's just it's just a musician right and it happens to be you right and and that uh, that is pretty fascinating and and so this um is this this context of complete free playing or free improvisation is that relatively new to you or is that something that you incorporated in your in your um, more jazz-oriented bands already? It's um, I guess doing a whole set like mm -hmm. that is that free is is rel is relatively new. Okay, I've definitely had moments like that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I think in the past it would happen, say either as an intro. Mm -hmm. To a song, or maybe we've we finished the song, but we mm -hmm. haven't hit the last note yet. Mm -hmm. And you know, if I say I'm with my trio and we're just getting creative, and just suddenly it develops into this free, you know, experimental thing. We've had some some moments like that, mm -hmm. but it's never planned, and mm -hmm. I never thought about doing a whole set like that. 
the other thing kind of similar to that was um, I did some recordings with uh, Michael Manring and mm -hmm. Tim Alexander for a project mm -hmm. called Attention Deficit. Um, but that never played live. Mm -hmm. You know, that was all, I mean, we jammed together, but it was in the studio. Mm -hmm. And then everything was constructed. And that was a different time, too. I just feel like I've come so much further along as a musician mm -hmm. since then. Mm -hmm. um, people like those records, and, it, and it's great. And I, every now and then I'll hear some of it. And I'll say, okay, yeah, this is some cool stuff here. But mm -hmm. I was working within my limitations then and mm -hmm. expanding as best I could. And now there's, you know, there's, the limitations are just much, much less. And I, just, mm -hmm. I have a lot more tools to work with, too, just as far as different, you know, how how to whether it's noise or even you know a, a different type of groove or how to interact with another musician so the, the way this project came out it would not have been the same um a number of years ago mm -hmm. yeah so it must be pretty exciting to, to to have this as a potential future outlet you know to to keep playing within that world i think I mean, for for me, it's been it's been like amazing to I was able to always able to do both, like completely free and and written music. And to me, the two they kind of like they there's some sort of cross, uh, whatever that word is. Uh, cross pollinization. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is which is just amazing. And like you know, like this this. Uh, I'm then when I'm playing a written piece, I'm trying to get the feel of the improvised. Mm. way into playing the written piece and the other way around and it's 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 wonderful yeah i'm uh, i'm looking forward to you guys playing more together and the album will be out pretty soon i think yeah i mean to me it um it validates everything that we were talking about yeah yeah here it is 2021 20, and i'm able to play in this improvised project with mm -hmm. these incredible musicians, with mm. one of them, Percy Jones, who I was listening to back then, you know, mm -hmm. as, I, as I was expanding, you know, I, somebody referred me to Brand X, so oh, you should listen to, to this stuff. And yeah, they, they, there it is, you know, that's, that, that's why. That's part, partly, you know, that's just the latest reason why. But I mean, there's been so many uh projects and yeah and i think if i had just you know said oh i'm just i'm just the guy from the heavy metal band and i'm just gonna either just do that band or you know do other bands like that or play only with musicians from that scene i just um i mean more power to you if you're happy doing that but i think part of the problem was i was so um inspired and I just felt like this really deep um, connection mm -hmm. when I would hear great improvising musicians. And I just, I had a number of sort of experiences here, you know, hearing live music in, at, at concerts that just knocked me out. I mean, there were the studio musicians I was talking about. Yeah. 
And it's, it's kind of funny, too, because one of the... Um, one of my favorite guitar players from that scene in the, of the studio was, was a guy, uh, his name's St Steph Burns. Mm -hmm. And he was looking to do more rock and roll. So he was mm -hmm. kind of coming from this more jazz, jazz rock mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And he ended up being one of the guitarists in the Alice Cooper band in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And then moved to uh, Italy. Mm-hmm. And he plays with um, this pop superstar, Vasco Rossi is, is his name. Mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. yeah. in, in Italy, he's bigger than you know, Elton John and McCartney. I mean, he's like that mm -hmm. level. Yes. And so, so, it's so it's so interesting, like watching his journey. Um, but I remember, yeah, I remember concerts with him and one of the other musicians ended up on television. She became a um, percussionist, vocalist on, on one of the late night shows, uh, The Tonight Show, actually. And um, some of the other concerts that I saw, like the more well-known musicians, I mean, I would, maybe not super well-known, but definitely in sort of the jazz, jazz rock world. Like I, I remember seeing uh, Trelot Gertu, the percussionist. Mm -hmm. um, I, I saw um, McLaughlin in a really small room for McLaughlin. I think it was with Trelock or two. Mm -hmm. um, I saw one of the last uh, Joe Zawinul tours. Uh, I mean, Me too. I guess, yeah, I guess he was around maybe five or ten years longer, but I didn't know. Yeah, this was like the late 90s and Mm -hmm. Wow, what a knockout! Mm -hmm. And uh, just right, every type of music from all over the world, just yeah, you know, just no unclassifiable. I remember his show was very like life changing because it was just like you can't classify this, mm -hmm. right? You can't commercialize this. This is, but it's incredible. Like no, everybody in that room was knocked out and it was like a, almost a religious experience like this is wonderful but if you try to present this to you know so and so at this record label <laughs> you know uh good luck you know? <laughs> you, so, I, don't, I don't know if you're still in contact with your with gary your old guitar teacher back then when you were 10 or something but he would be very proud of you because what you're doing is you're making all of these connections, right? On a, yeah, on a yeah. God, I, I need to see if he's still around. I did the last time I spoke to him was like in the 90s. Uh -huh, okay. so I did see him and I was already kind of in guitar magazines and he knew <laughs> I'd succeeded as a professional musician. And, uh -huh. and he was he was proud. But I yeah, I think he'd yeah, he'd, he'd be interested to see what's going on now. Yeah, it's it's funny because talking to you has sort of like um, reactivated some memories in me as well about my my path, and also this this sort of uh, wish that I have to connect. Uh, uh, well, and to connect people, not necessarily. I don't need to be involved. Even you know, it's like for me, it's I'm happy if I can bring people together, and if I can bring opinions together or styles of music together or 
like if I can, can get a, a famous rock guitarist to play on an experimental uh, record and stuff like that. I've always I've always done something like that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I feel there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, positivity in in making connections, and especially if it's across cultures and and tastes and you know. Like I was, well, that's I was what, yeah, that's that's what matters, I think. Yeah, is yeah. the the connection and the music and the just the feel it. You know, if you're feeling, if it leads to music that we are feeling and that we yeah. uh, that uh, as players and folks like Leo, who you know are genuine appreciators of the music, even if they don't play, yeah. uh, that we all agree upon. This is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. That's what matters, you know, yes. not not the other stuff. Occasionally, you know, if somebody has a, you know, somebody can have a hit that, you know, uh, you know, the band Snarky Puppy, for example, like it's mm -hmm. amazing what's happened with them. And it's mm -hmm. just great, incredibly well played music. Mm -hmm. But somehow it, it struck a, a chord, and it's managed to have this industry success, which is awesome. amazing. So and occasion, so occasionally you have those those stories, but more often than not, it's it's a much smaller um, audience than a more com than a, the commercial crowd. But that's fine because that's not why we do it. Yes, <laughs> Alex, thank you so much. I promise you to. To stop at around ninety minutes, so let's do that. And I'm really okay. uh, it's hoping good to end on. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I, we, could, we could obviously talk all day. I, I know, I know. And, um, but let's let's. Uh, I hope that I get to see you in August, which uh, I think uh, Leo is planning. So yeah, yeah, that would be let's, amazing. Let's see. Yes. Um, let's plan on that. Okay. So great, man. Thank you very thanks, much. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for your help with the recording as well. Course. So excited. I love it. Can't wait for that to come out. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Alex. All right, Marcus. Great talking to you. Yeah, see you okay. soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.